Well, this really is quite disorienting, actually. I feel like I need to maybe just... Well, yeah, that's better. No, not really. Well, um, Happy New Year. There's a whole lot of glowing going on in our texts for today. Isaiah speaks a promise to the people of Judah, a promise of light coming into a world of darkness. Now, whenever we read words like this, it's important to remember the context. It's important to remember something as basic as this. In the days of Isaiah, there was no electricity, at least not of the human-generated and controlled kind. No electric trains, no electric razors, no electric cars, no electric lights. No electric lights, which meant that darkness was really dark and scary and cold. Now, we don't get that, uh, not really. Everyone in this room, I suspect, has grown up with electricity in their homes. The sun goes down, we turn on a light, or we change the thermostat, uh, and the darkness and the cold are kept at bay. We go outside at night, we carry a flashlight with us. We walk through neighborhoods that are blanketed by the glow of porch lights, neon lights, motion-detecting lights. We have to drive a ways, right, just to see the stars. You have to drive because all the human-made lights make them hard to see clearly. Um, darkness isn't scary for us. It's not even really dark. But in Isaiah's day, darkness was really dark and scary and cold. Just as the ocean was considered the place uh, where monsters lived, so the darkness was believed to conceal a host of dangers. But here comes the light, says Isaiah, a gift from God. And the light does more than light up the darkness. Listen to Isaiah's words. Nations shall come to your light. This is God speaking to the people. Nations shall come to your light. Then you shall see and be radiant. This light from God does more than light up the darkness, making it possible for the people to see and so live without fear. The light coming from God lights up the people of God. Like God is a match and the people are candles set alight by God's coming near to them. God's light does more than light up the darkness. It sets God's people aflame. And the nations see the light coming from the people. The nations witness their radiance and they come to see the brightness of their dawn. The exiles and wanderers, the prodigals and scatterlings, they see the glow coming from Zion and are drawn back home. And as all of that goodness finds its way to Zion, the people's glowing grows even brighter, which draws even more people and more glory their way. Visitors will come from afar bearing gifts of gold and frankincense, and God's house will be glorified. There is a whole lot of glowing going on. And Christians read these words of ancient light and see in them another light, this one a star shining in the dark night sky, a star guiding three wise men, three magi, three court wizards, three star watchers, three old school scientists, um, three Gentiles to a little town called Bethlehem in a little region called Judea in a little country called Palestine, a place so small you couldn't find it in the dark. And so God lit up the sky with a star and the star pointed the way. And so the three wise pagans found a manger and in it still another light, this one the light of the world. Now, there are all sorts of ways to react to the light. We can be drawn toward it like the proverbial moth to the flame. 
we can turn toward it and bask in its glow. We can avert our eyes because it's too bright. We can put on sunglasses and so mitigate its intensity. We can turn our backs on it out of shame. We can run away from it to cover our tracks. We can try our best to snuff it out. How we reckon with the light reveals something about who we really are. And so the wise men, for example, are revealed to be deeply curious seekers of knowledge, and so they follow the star to Bethlehem. Now, we can't know what happened next uh, to the wise men. Perhaps they experienced an epiphany in that manger, which Dictionary.com defines as, quote, a sudden intuitive perception of or insight into the reality or essential meaning of something, usually initiated by some simple homely or commonplace occurrence or experience, end quote. So perhaps the wise men experienced this sudden insight into reality that marked them forever, what we might call a conversion experience, uh, an experience which changed their course and led them off onto a path that they'd never before dreamed existed. Perhaps the wise men were never the same after they followed the star to Bethlehem. Or maybe the wonder of it all sort of slowly wore off and they returned to their regular pursuits and only thought of that night maybe once a year or so. We can't know what happened next. But their coming to the light reveals that for a very short time at least, uh, the wise men were open to the coming of the light and were willing to drop everything in order to follow it wherever it took them. And that's no small thing. Then there is Herod. Something is revealed about him and his response to the light. Herod thrived in the darkness. He grew rich and powerful in the darkness. He learned how to be ruthless in the shadows. The very last thing that Herod wanted was light to shine on him and his court. The light threatened him. It threatened his power. It threatened to expose him. It threatened to uncover all of his carefully buried secrets. And so Herod's response to the light was to try to snuff it out. But God, the bringer of the light had other plans. And so the wise men went home by another way, and Joseph and Mary carried the light of the world with them into exile in Egypt, and there they stayed until Herod was dead, his own feeble flames snuffed out and buried under the earth. There are lots of ways to respond to the light. How we respond does reveal something about us. But the fact of its coming is not dependent upon our response. The light just is. We can turn toward it, we can follow it, we can bask in it, we can run from it, we can try to snuff it out. But the light just is. There's a whole lot of glowing going on. Now, one of the very best things that we can do in response to the light is to read by it. And that's what I'd like us to spend some time on this morning. I'd like us to do some reading in the light of Christ, the light of the world. As we look back over the last year, the year of our Lord, 2010, as we look back in the light of Christ, what do we see? As we pick up the story of this congregation as it unfolded in 2010, what do we read in the light of Christ? Now, it's easy to simply state the facts. We experienced so many deaths and so many births. We said goodbye to so many people and hello to so many others. We did this and we did that and we failed to do this and we failed to do that. We had this happen to us, and we managed to avoid having that other thing happen to us, and so on. The details, the facts, are pretty easy to recount. And each fact, each detail, did have its impact upon us. No, no death went unmourned. No birth went uncelebrated. 
No goodbye was unfelt, no welcome was anything less than heartfelt, and so on. Each fact, each detail had its own weight, its own size, its own impact, and we felt them all to one degree or another. We are people of the earth, people of dust, and so the day-to-day -day earthy realities count for something. Mundane is not the same as unimportant. Each detail, each fact signified. Still, there is more to be seen, I think, more to the story that we read. And that more is revealed when we look back over the year while standing in the light of Christ. There's more revealed when we read our recent past in that light. The fact is that we experienced death in 2010. But the deeper truth revealed by the light of Christ is that we witnessed our sisters and brothers being drawn into God's arms. We were reminded that death is not the last word. We read in Christ's light that the stories of these sisters and brothers continue. And so we have our hope renewed as we see that we will one day join them in that place and time beyond dying. These are some of the things we see, the things we read when we look back in the light of Christ. The fact is that our associate pastor, Sue Conrad, ended her time of service among us. But the deeper truth revealed in the light of Christ is that every ending is also a beginning. We saw God's hand at work in Sister Sue, calling her here and then calling her on. We saw God's hand at work among us, receiving from and giving back to Sue, shaping her for ministry as she equipped us for the same. In the light of Christ, we see that our loss will one day be some other congregation's gain and that we are well equipped for such a transition. These are some of the things we see, the things we read when we look back in the light of Christ. The fact is that we bought and renovated a property at 639 East Chestnut Street. But the deeper truth revealed in the light of Christ is that we are being drawn ever more deeply into relationship with our community. We're providing more than a structure comprised of bricks and wood and paint. We're providing a home, a place of stability and blessing a tangible witness to what we ourselves have found in Christ, a bit of good news, a sign of Christ's reign on earth. All of these things and more are revealed when we see 639 East Chestnut Street in the light of Christ. These are some of the things we see, the things we read when we look back in the light of Christ. As we look back, we can each likely come up with our own list of facts, of details, our own list of events, that we saw as significant or important. I've only pulled out three of what I'm sure is a myriad of such facts and details. The new babies, the new attenders, the new members, the newly baptized, the energy for mission, the joy for communion, the generosity expressed with finances and time and gifts of every sort necessary for the well-being of this congregation. There really are lots and lots and lots of facts for us to sift through in the light of Christ. And I would invite you, I would invite us, to reflect on those events, those facts, and those details of 2010, both here at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church, and also in your own personal lives, in the light of Christ's coming, and see what deeper truths, what deeper meanings you find in that light. Because I believe that it is only when we read the past in the light of Christ that we really see and really understand what happened and what it means. Remember that the light has come. The light is and there's nothing too small or too unimportant
that it cannot be read more deeply in the light of Christ. So look back in Christ's light and consider. Look back in Christ's light and wonder. Look back in Christ's light and give thanks. This morning is, of course, uh, the first Sunday of the year of our Lord, 2011. And so it only seems fitting that we try to look ahead a bit and see what we can see in the light of Christ. Now here, we quickly come up against um, our limitation as human beings. We can't predict the future, um, at least not in any clear detail. We know how many surprises await us, how many events we can't see coming, how many twists and turns remain in a road that seems straight from this vantage point. So we do this looking forward with a, a full awareness that we could be wrong. We can't see much past the noses on our faces. Anything is possible. Is that enough caveats for everybody? Um, if so, let's move on. While we cannot see the future, we can certainly dream. We can imagine. We can hope. We can pray. And we can do all of those things in the light of Christ. In fact, I think it's essential that we do these things in the light of Christ. I think it's essential that we begin now to look ahead in the light of Christ, to understand everything that we do and everything that we are as a congregation is existing under that light, and to trust that the light will not depart from us, to understand ourselves as children of the light, all aglow with it, whose purpose in this world is to keep on glowing until everyone is drawn into the light, to keep on glowing until the whole world is illuminated. If that's who we are, and if that's where we're headed, then our immediate future is best understood as a step along the way, a step already lit up and calling us forward. So, what is it that we hope for, long for, imagine, and pray for our congregation in 2011? What can we see as we look ahead in the light of Christ? Well, here again, um, I'm sure we'd all have our own unique lists. So here are just a few of the things that are on mine. The first is, I admit, one that I borrowed from a friend his name is Michael. He's part of our Monday evening congregation, uh, the alternative community that meets here for dinner every week. Now, for whatever reason, Michael was taken by our decision to purchase uh, this piano. According to Michael, its purchase was missional, though he didn't use that word. For Michael, the piano purchase is not about our pleasure or the quality of our music or the soundness of our ethics. The piano, as Michael saw it, was about two things. Nurture and mission. With this piano, we can nurture the soul, Michael said. So he imagined the sounds of Bach and Mozart and Handel and even old Beethoven in this sanctuary, the music that in his mind draws people closer to God. And I imagine the same thing with perhaps just a little bit of Dave Brubaker, George Winston thrown in um, for good measure. Michael imagined us as a community nurtured by beautiful music. And Michael also challenged me with his vision of the piano becoming another point of connection between our congregation and the broader community, an instrument shared in a way that enriches the lives of people all around us. For Michael, it's more than a piano. It's a gift from God to be shared, a gift intended for our own nurture and a gift intended to be used by us to shed a bit more light around about us. So when I look ahead into 2011 in the light of Christ, I imagine us taking up Michael's vision and his challenge, seeing the piano as we see all of our other assets, as gifts from God with a purpose, a purpose made plain in the light of Christ. Like our money and our time and our energy and even our building, I can imagine the piano as another means of our living faithfully in the light of Christ. 
Well, that doesn't mean it'll happen, but it certainly won't happen if we don't begin by imagining just how it might. My second reading into the future in the light of Christ has to do with our pastoral transition. Uh, the temptation that we face is um, to go all corporate and sort of assume that what we need to do is fill the empty position and be done with it. We had two full-time pastors, now we have one. So the necessary thing to do is to go out and find somebody to replace the one that left and get back to two full-time pastors and then get on about our business. And we could do that. We could simply fill a slot and move on. But when I think about this transitional moment in the life, in the light of Christ, I feel compelled to slow us down just a little bit. And not for the expected reasons, not for the sake of frugality or any of those other reasons that we sometimes use to slow down decision-making. While such things, I think, have to be taken into account, I don't think they can be the primary things we think about when moving through this transition. And so instead, I'd invite us to imagine ourselves into the future and to do that imagining in the light of Christ, which means asking some pretty interesting questions, uh, like, what is our mission? How can we best live it out? What are we called to do? What might we be called to do? How can we best respond to that call? How can we be equipped to meet that call? I believe that discerning next steps in the calling of additional pastoral or other staff has to begin with the question of mission and vision. That's what I think it means to look ahead in the light of Christ. What is Christ up to among us? What is Christ calling us to do? What do we hear Christ saying to us about being faithful to that call? What gifts might the Spirit be sending our way to help us be faithful? In other words, starting our reading of the future in light of Christ and Christ's purposes and Christ's calling as best we can discern them, beginning there and then moving on to the facts and the details and the finances, all of which have their place, but all of which have to be held, I believe, as secondary to the larger discernment done in the light of Christ. That doesn't mean we'll do it that way, but we certainly won't if we don't begin by imagining just how we may. My third and last venture into the future in the light of Christ is not about practicalities or programs. My third imaginative reading of our future in light of Christ is about the quality of our life together. What kind of people has Christ made us to be? What kind of people is Christ calling us to become? Now, reading the near future in this case means also reading out beyond the immediate, flipping to the last chapter and reading backwards to discover the well-lighted path between now and then. It means reading again about the coming reign of God, the kingdom of God, and what it looks like or will look like. It means remembering that future, if that makes sense, remembering how it's all supposed to end, remembering the broad outlines, the contours, the overall shape of things to come. New Jerusalem coming down from the clouds. Um, the dead raised to life again. The lion and the lamb resting side by side. The people of God abiding in a city that needs no lights because all the light it needs has already come from the Lamb of God. The time and place in which violence and warfare, sickness and despair, crying and mourning, and everything evil is gone. A new creation, a redeemed creation a redeemed people. That's the last chapter. And so using that as our end point, and with the light of Christ to read by, what do we see about the quality of our life together in 2011? 
How will 2011 shape us, prepare us, and move us toward the day of Christ's coming? Will we grow in compassion in the coming year, in generosity, in love, in forgiveness? Will we grow in care for the poor? Will we become more open in our welcome? Will we become less judgmental, less self-righteous, less self-regarding? Will we continue turning away from the call of empire? Will we resist the fear of death? Will we proclaim peace to those far away and peace to those who are near? Will we shine as bright as the one who shines upon us? Will we understand ourselves more fully to be the very children of God? And will we come to a deeper awareness that God's children are more in number than we can possibly imagine? Well, I believe we will do all these things and more in the year ahead. Not necessarily by any great leaps and bounds. I suspect that whatever movement toward the light we do is, well, it may well be more discernible in hindsight, um, and even then might seem kind of small, but I do believe we will grow toward these things, and not through any strength of our own, whether of body or will. We'll grow toward these things because the light has come. The light is. And the light will remain until all of us are completely drawn into its warm embrace. As I said, each one of us likely has a list of our own imaginings and hopes for the coming years. We look to the future in the light of Christ. And Lord willing, we will realize all of mine. Lord willing, we will realize all of yours. Lord willing, we will realize all of ours. And the good news is that the Lord is willing. We already know that because... We've seen God's light in the form of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And so, dear sisters and brothers, as we enter this new year, let us remember that the light has come. The light is. And there's nothing too small or too unimportant that it cannot be read more deeply in the light of Christ. So let's look ahead in Christ's light and consider. Let's look ahead in Christ's light and wonder. Let's look ahead in Christ's light and give thanks. Amen.